Hey there, drafts people. To help fill the void and the lack of episodes in your draftsman feed, we're rewinding back to five Proco Classic interviews and one new one. You're listening to this new mini series where we take a deep dive into the lives, journeys, and minds of some of the most fascinating artists and instructors from fine art masters to comic legends. Today, we have one of the best art instructors of all time, Steve Houston. Steve is a fine art painter and author of the book, Figure Drawing for Artists. This is an older interview, one of the first I've done. Me and my production manager, Sean, back in the day, we drove up to LA to meet up with Steve and we couldn't afford to rent a sound studio. So we got the cheapest hotel room and tried to make it presentable. This one goes deep. Lots of philosophical talk and little gems for you to mine. I'm sure you'll all get something profound out of it. Enjoy. Hey guys, so welcome to Proco. My name's Sam Prokopenko. This is the one and only Steve Houston, one of my biggest idols, somebody I really look up to. I'm a fan of you. I'm a fan oh, of thank you. Work. Wow. Yeah. You heard that yeah, one. That's right. <laughs> Steve is a really good artist and even better teacher, I think. Probably one of the best teachers alive, in my opinion. He teaches workshops on New Masters Academy and art mentors, right? Yeah. 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 Mm. Why don't you start with the beginning? All right. When did you start? It was drawing? February 1959. No, that's what I was. <laughs> well, yeah. I, I went to Art Center, uh, moved from Alaska to California to go to Art Center, uh, the, the art school in Pasadena, and uh, went as an illustration major, which is where all the craft was. The fine art was doing all the New York stuff, and illustration was the place to learn how to draw and how to paint and all that good stuff. So I went through that. I illustrated for a number of years. and uh, Was that college? Yeah. Art Center was a college. Right. But were you drawing before that? No, well, I always drew, but I, I draw a comic. You can see it in my paintings now. I drew comic book characters as a kid, but I didn't have any training. It was up in Alaska. So you started as a college student. My uh, one and before Art Center, my one and only art class was Leatherworks, and I made a, or I guess it was a copper. I made a little copper bulldog belt buckle. That was my whole education in art up until Art Center. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so that well, was, I guess there that's wasn't a much you had. People, uh, people often think yeah. that you have to start as like yeah. a little kid. No, I always but. drew. It was the one thing I could do better than my two big brothers. Okay. So, so, you, so, so you I, got, I got my identity out of drawing. So I drew all the time, but it was just out of my head, right. copying comic book characters. Okay. I used to send my drawings into Marvel and I was a Marvel guy or a Marvel kid. And they'd send these nice letters back saying, work on your anatomy or whatever it was, but okay. no, no training. And the, nice but I discovered Art Center, so I went there and then uh, illustrated for a few years. And just, it was a burnout profession. I got known as being pretty quick. So I get these overnight or over the weekend deadlines. I'd stay up for two or three days to crank out something that wasn't very good. And it just took the fun out of it. So I went back. I'd always taught a little bit. I went back and started teaching at Art Center. And then that way, not only were they paying me to practice, I could sit in on all my favorite uh, teachers. Uh, a lot of them were the teachers I'd had in school. I'd sit in their classes. Dan McCall was a huge favorite of mine. Richard Bunkle, who's no longer with us. Dave McCarsky was a big influence. Vern Wilson, Harry Carmian, these, uh, uh, some of them were still there, some not. But anyway, I, that way they were basically paying me to get a master's program is the way I looked at it. I went in, they told me to 
teach a class and I would teach it the way I wanted to learn. If I wanted to learn about color, I'd try and get a head painting class maybe and teach yeah. color theory and head painting. If I wanted to work on hands, I'd give them extra work and class on hands. And then I basically had a research team work on all the problems I was trying to learn. To me, it was wow. nirvana. It How great. old were you when they asked you to be a teacher? Oh, I was. I started teaching, I think a year out of college, doing high school classes on Saturday. They had a Saturday program at that point. I don't know if they still do. Okay. And, then, they, and then I became on the, I was uh, one of the substitute teachers when somebody got sick. Uh-huh. And then Bern Hogarth, the old Tarzan comic strip fame, he became a mentor of mine for a while. And he had a heart attack and I took over his class. Then Dan McCall, another mentor of mine, is still out there painting masterpieces. He retired and recommended me for his head painting. So I had a good solid figure drawing class, good solid head painting class. And that's- Okay. We're going to pause the history for a second because I want to ask, right out of college, you started teaching at the college. And Pretty you took soon. over all these giant, like, that was teachers. How were you, how did you get so good? Two or three, I wasn't very good. They just needed what? somebody. It was two or three years later, you know. So, okay. by the time I started taking those classes, and I was a B-team teacher. Okay. How I got as good as I could get in that time mm-hmm. is when I went to college, I was really a C-plus student. I was an average student. I never got one piece in the student gallery. I never got a scholarship and I would have loved to get in a piece in the student gallery, but I didn't want a scholarship because I saw what would happen is the students who got the scholarships, they had to go every single semester so they couldn't take a break and they would then kind of try and game the system. They know that that guy over there really likes this kind of work, so mm-hmm. they give him that kind of work. So, you figure out how to get a good grade because if you're not getting right. B's and A's, you're not going to keep that scholarship. And what I wanted to do is have the flexibility of failing, being able to fail right. and also targeting. So, if I was getting a uh, abstract expressionist class or contour drawing class, it wasn't what I thought I wanted to be at that time, I would blow it off basically. And as long as I got a C, mm-hmm. I was good with that. And then I would bust my butt in the figure drawing and in the painting and stuff. And actually, I didn't even really paint. There wasn't much in terms of painting as we think of those just nice juicy all the prima paints. It was more uh, either fine art painting, just kind of playing with paint or rendering. So, I worked very hard on the rendering skills, learning to make something as real as it can be, reflections and transparencies and surfaces and stuff. With and a pencil. With a pencil or whatever, gouache pencil, that kind of stuff, oh, acrylic, so you- oil eventually. They were called rendering classes. So, you do it as tight as you could basically. Okay. As realistic as possible. So, when did you introduce paint and color? Much later, when I started to teach, I started teaching drawing because I, I still see myself as this. I'm a draftsman that learned how to paint. I was more naturally good at drawing. Painting was actually quite hard for me. Rendering is a little different. It's just if you're willing to put in 100 hours, you're going to make that apple look like an apple. Yeah. Uh, so, that was mileage in. But painting, getting color, getting fresh strokes, making that form turn, while still showing the process, not hiding that process through uh, blending techniques. Mm-hmm. That was harder to make it look yeah. like a sergeant or a fetching or whatever. That came much later and that takes good color knowledge and I didn't really have that. And so, I could render well, I could draw well, I couldn't paint well. So, what I did is when I started teaching the drawing class, I sat in with Dan McCall mainly mm-hmm. and he'd give these great demos and he'd talk and tell you hilarious jokes all the way through. But then we'd take a break somewhere around lunch and we'd go into the slide room 
And back then it was still slides. <laughs> and we, he'd click through and he'd show us Dean Cornwell's and Sargent's and Chase's and Soroyo was big with him. Mm. And he'd talk about the color theory. Look at the warm and the cool, the rich and the gray, and the, the light. Just and the private dark. instruction? Yeah. Well, for his whole class. Oh, but I'd be sitting in. I'd, oh, I'd have okay. done my Tuesdays and Thursdays. I'd do my uh, drawing class. And maybe on Wednesday, he'd have a head painting class. So mm. I'd go in, usually have lunch with him, and he just let me hang out. And every teacher I asked, let me do that. And I would go in on, you know, whatever number of days. Sometimes I'd be working on my own stuff. Sometimes I wouldn't. But when I could, which is quite often, I would go in and sit in. And he'd take his whole class into the slide screening room. And mm. we'd just go through slides. He'd talk it through. And then I'd watch him. I'd be painting with the class, too. But I'd watch and listen to him. And he'd sit down and say, okay, now this is blues too rich. You got to shift it this way. You got to right. do that to make it harmonize. And I slowly painstakingly figured out color. But yeah. it took a while. It took a few years. And where it really took off for me was when I started teaching head painting because I was teaching color theory as well as drawing principles, basically. Yeah. And I finally figured it out a couple of years into teaching it. But I was How did not- you it out? Did you read books or did because you experiment? I, I did all that, but I also had a research team. What does that mean? I had 10 or 15 students in there. Uh -huh. Okay, guys, we're going to work on warm, cool how to get the warm lights and the cool shadows to harmonize. Okay. So, I do a pretty terrible demo because you're the teacher, they assume okay. it's good. So, you get that kind of, they cut you a break, you know, because you got that authority. You know, if okay. the therapist says something, it must be true. It's that kind of thing. So, I, I do a fairly horrible demo and then I go around and help these first or third semester students muddle through and every once in a while, somebody by oftentimes accident will get this gorgeous warm cool. I'd go, I'd say, oh, that's how you mix that. And I'd make a middle okay. and I'd steal from them. Okay. And so, they weren't actually going out researching things you would no, tell them to do? No. Okay. no. <laughs> to be clear. Yeah. I, thought you, I like, should have thought of that though. That would be <laughs> great though. You assign a research project yeah. and they have to write an essay yeah. about color. Theory. Well, they do that. They, they do that, you know, with their exercises, you know, when I give them assignments and they'd go back home and they'd work on whatever. Right. Let's make sure the foreground is a different value range of the background so it separates. And, yeah. and you're constantly banging into your students so you're knocking into your own head these fundamental principles. Mm -hmm. What are the fundamental ideas? Not the flash. If you have 100 hours to make that apple look right, mm -hmm. you're going to stumble into it eventually. It's just a matter of yeah. patience. But in a few minutes, when you have to edit out your time or the number of strokes mm -hmm. or the colors, when you have to reduce it down to some essential limited structure or palette, how do you get that truth to come through? There's certain fundamental things. And that's what started to click with me. You know, if you give me enough time, I could do a piece that a studio would buy for a movie poster or a movie comp or something. I could do pretty well given time. But if I wanted to stylize it and make it my own, not just knock it out or belabor it as a generic rendering, which is more or less what my illustration style was, it's pretty generic looking, it was not distinctive. How do I make it my voice? How do I take those principles that I love in Sargent and not look like a secondhand Sargent? Yeah. So it's understanding the structures he's working with, those simple structures, the color theory. When Sargent makes a stroke, most of those strokes are going down the long axis of the form. Well, why is that? Well, if we get a long axis line, say it's a highlight mark here, it's going to show the corner where the top of the wrist and forearm meets the side or the front of the nose meets the side of the nose. That corner then catches that highlight or that core shadow. And so, that's structural. But then I also started to realize it's gestural. 
gestural is how we get from this to that. Mm -hmm. How do we move from here to there beautifully, correctly, truthfully, or uh, dialistically in your own style, your own voice? Well, that's also when I do this, I can take you from the brow ridge all the way to the tip of the nose. I can take you from the elbow all the way maybe to the middle joint of the index finger, say, mm -hmm. with one line. It can be a connective line. Well, yeah. we could do that with color then. Why don't we take that orange and we'll have it slowly move into the blues? Mm -hmm. And then that gradation from orange to blue then moves the eye from here to there. So how do we move over that form and feel that solid structure, that box logic? How do we move between those forms and feel that fluid, graceful connectivity, which is really what artists are paid to do? We're paid to show the rest of the world how the world works on some level. The world can be this beautiful, harmonious place like a sunset, or it can be this rough textured holocaust like a Jerome Whitkin painting set. Yeah. And it's our job to be biased, to have a point of view and see things through a lens. And the only way you can do that is reduce it, distill it down to its essence, and then build it back up with a little bit of tweaking with prejudices. Rather than making everything its own color, I'm going to make everything bluish. It's going to key over blue. And so I've cheated the truth and pushed it toward the direction for some purpose. Okay. So the way you show forms in life, that's your style? So yeah. The way you show anything, it can be the structure of it, the form. How does that chiaroscuro, how does that movement come out of the canvas? And we feel that, you know, the nose coming out and the mm -hmm. background going back, all that kind of stuff. But it could also be the design you know, how do we flow or how do we bounce or how do we break from this to that? How do things fade together? Maybe we use a lot of soft and lost edges or how do they separate? We'll use hard edges. It's every visual component, which mm -hmm. is shape, color, line, angle, texture, depth, flatness, realism, abstraction, mm -hmm. organic, architectural. There's a million of all those visual components are going to be many and few, big and small. Those are all tools of the trade that you can use to make a point. Okay. Yeah, we'll definitely come back to style. Right now, let's see, we'll go back to history, kind of pause that college. Okay. <laughs> so, so I illustrated for a number of years and then I do, it was just a burnout. You know, you're, you're cranking these things out. Where can we see these? You can't. <laughs> no, you probably can. You can probably find a few of them, but I did Blood Brain. Beta and then VHS did just come out. So it was a big market for young artists to crank out these, you know, these big illustrations. It'd be a little package for mm. a video cassette, basically. And what they did is they went back and they grabbed all the great, but especially all the lousy movies, all the TV shows. They repackaged and put them out so you could watch them at home. Mm. So all that needed cover design. So I was doing all these horror covers. I did Chainsaw Massacre Part Two. I did uh, the Barbarian Brothers that were poor man's Arnold Schwarzenegger's, they were twins. It was like, oh, you get two for the price of one, kind of thing. Okay. Just bad stuff. It was, it was mediocre. And then I did, I did a lot of comps. You know, I did comps for the fantasy movies that were coming out and that kind of stuff. Anything that was figurative. And why was it bad? Was the, it the idea? The, the art was lacking? bad. The art. Okay. So, yeah. what was lacking at that point? In your... uh, both the concept and the artist. I was a hack, basically. I was cranking out stuff. I had a little bit of talent. 
I put together a portfolio. I could draw the figure well so I can do these bigger than life kind of characters. And I was just knocking them out for the deadlines. And I was yeah. doing what they needed to have done. Then you bring it in and they'd want changes to it. And they'd say, okay, turn it this way and do this and put this here. And, okay. and uh, they'd make me put tanks when there was no tank in the movie into it. And, you know, all this kind of nonsense. And you just knock it out. And it was no fun, really. It was, okay. it was making pretty good money for a while. But uh, I was turned out really bad art. When you're illustrating, at least on the level I was illustrating, which is middle class level, it was not the heights of illustration like Golden Age or Silver Age illustration by any means. I was doing someone else's idea okay. for a mediocre product under usually very tight deadlines okay, and for an okay amount of money. But all those things have an effect. If you're going to pay me more, I'll work harder. If yeah. uh, you give me more time, I'll work longer. Mm -hmm. You know, if you quit changing it, it'll be more cohesive. Right. Or if I'm not lazy, I'll put more time into the composition. Mm -hmm. And I was just putting it out there. Think of playing golf. If you've got 20 minutes to go practice every single day, would it be better to take those 20 minutes and swing that club perfectly, say, 15 times and really get that muscle memory in there? Or would it be better to get more mileage and do 100 strokes and just kind of do this with the club? You know, what's going to make you a better golfer? The 15. Yeah. So, what you do, how you practice is what you are. Right. So, if you're practicing doing crappy drawings, you're going to mm. be a lousy artist eventually. Okay. If you're going to be a hack novelist for the pulp slasher genre, and then in your spare time, you're going to do the great American novel. You're never going to do the great American novel because you've taught yourself mm. how to be a slasher novelist. If you're going to be a linebacker for the NFL, you can't someday switch and become a ballet dancer. The muscles have been trained in a completely different direction, and that's going to inform the rest of your life. Okay. So, you can't say at some point, I'm going to do good stuff. You're going to have trouble with that. Right. You know, everybody does that sometimes. Everybody puts out something that's a stinker, just the way life is. But if you're not generally trying your best and focusing to get better, there's no stasis in art or really in life. If you're not going to try and get better, you're going to get worse. Even if it's because you just repeat your original inspirations. At 18, I came up with this really beautiful color scheme or composition. Mm -hmm. But at 45, you're going to be a bad hack copyist. People worry about someone stealing their ideas, but we steal our own ideas and we do them right. more poorly later on in life. So we have to keep reinventing ourselves, keep trying to push, make it better, make that line better, make that shape simpler. You know, look at most of the great artists, even back into the Renaissance, look like a Titian, and you'll see their styles evolve. Michelangelo, styles evolve. Because they knew if you don't start pushing in a new direction, you're going to just be hacking out the same old stuff. Yeah. Did you realize that at the time? That yeah. That's why I decided to get out of it. So, what I did is I started to teach more and more, even though it cost me money. I made more okay. money illustrating. But also, sometimes you'll have two or three month drought as a freelance artist. So, it was nice mm -hmm. to have some steady income, but it wasn't much income. Okay. It was 30 bucks an hour I made, I think, at the height of teaching at Art Center in the 80s. Mm -hmm. So, I went back and started teaching full time. And that took me a couple of years to get into that. I always taught a little bit because I love teaching. And like I said, it's a way to practice. And for me, the classes, doing a workshop like I'm doing this week or doing the semester classes I used to do, that's my sketchbook or one of them anyway.
Mm-hmm. So I'm sitting down with that young student, showing her how to draw a head and redrawing the cheekbone and seeing how she drew a better nose than I did and wondering why. All that stuff is great. So it helps. But it's not going to mitigate the fact that then you go home and stay up all night and crank up blood brain two or whatever it is. Right. It's not going to balance the scorecard on that. Yeah. But uh, I started teaching because I figured, okay, I can render pretty well. I can do other people's ideas. I can draw well. I can't paint. Mm-hmm. Think about when you paint, I'm separating rendering when you tighten things down and you lose the strokes, lose the process into that film of realism. How do you make something unfinished? Because that's what a stroke is. If you lay a stroke down and don't lose it into the surrounding color field, it's unfinished. How do you make something unfinished finished? That's a tough problem. So if you're going to be painterly or stylistic in any way, how are you going to make it feel like it's a complete idea? That's a tricky deal. Yeah. Where's the consistency in that? If you're going to use broken line, broken soft edges, you know, limited color, simplified form. Why does it not look unfinished? How can a sketch be consistent. worthy of being framed? In other words, worthy of going in a gallery. Okay. And the, the trick to that is if it feels like it's saying what it needs to say. In other words, every stroke for the most part that you put down or every mark in that artwork, if it's speaking the truth about what you're trying to say, this is a cheekbone that turns it flows down into this structure that comes forward and steps back. If those truths ring out, despite the technique, it'll feel finished. But if it's a placeholder, if you do a uh, figure drawing and you just do a ball for the head, it could be anybody's head in almost any position. You know, you got some sense of where that position is probably. You haven't nailed it down in space, in position. It doesn't have the right character and it doesn't have a unique character to the models there. But ideally, if you've got, and Charles Hawthorne said this, it's a little bit of hyperbole, but makes for a good teaching moment. Well, every mark you make, I know how you're feeling. If you were really wanting to get out of that classroom and go mm-hmm. have lunch, that's going to come through on some level, that mark. It's going to be right. a lazy, impatient mark that's not speaking, not doing the work it needs to do. But if that tracks like an ant up over, if you can actually feel when you put that stroke on that cheekbone, the mound this cheekbone. N.C. Wyeth said, and this I think is true, he said, if I was doing a painting of a guy reaping the fields with his scythes, let's say, he'd make those up for the most part later in his career. He said, by the end of the day, man, my neck and back was sore because I was feeling that same tension. It's like method acting. Yeah. The method actor actually feels those emotions and sometimes suffers for it after the film's over. Mm-hmm. And he suffered for it because he dialed into that tension. So finding that is incredibly complex. And the artist generally, not always, but generally, most of the great art movements have done this, is going to distill down. It's going to take a piece of the truth. It might just be by framing it. I'm not going to put all the rest of the room. We're just framed here, but there's a whole wide world we don't get to see in this frame. But also, what am I going to do about that particular pedal? Am I going to do every possible thing? Am I going to get out the magnifying glass and do a miniature Mm -hmm. rendering of it? Or am I going to just make it one stroke or leave that one out completely? You know, and so we're always editing down. So the trick, one of the tricks is when we edit, let's do it out of a strength, out of a choice. Let's say, shoot, if I had more time, I'd put more pedals in there. If I had more times, each pedal would be more rendered pedal. But let's do something 
that speaks to some poetic truth, some deeper truth about it. Maybe it's just a zigzag of yellow right. or a splatter with a brush or something like that, or it's taken out completely or it's made bigger, it's moved over, it's set back three feet. You know, what are we going to do to change it or edit it in such a way that it supports our system of belief, our agenda? You know, we're not journalists, we're editorialists. And what are we really trying to say about that? And the clearer you can be on that in terms of the craft, mm-hmm. am I painting a front plane now? Well, that front plane should have something to do with this front plane and that front plane there. All those front planes in flesh are going to have some relationship of color and value and such. And because they're all on an organic figure, they're going to have some relationship in terms of shape too, because they're all going to be somewhat organic figurative shapes. And that'll be very different than something that's clean lines and architectural. So, are you saying those decisions should be based on what your message is instead of just the level of detail? Ideally. Now, that might be very carefully thought out. That tends to be the kind of guy I am. But most artists in history don't think it out, but they feel it. Mm-hmm. You know, every time you work, your instincts are telling you there's something wrong. It doesn't sit back or it's wrong scale or whatever it is. You're making those critical choices. Oftentimes, and for most artists, even advanced artists, most of the time without the critical thinking. But what I argue in, when I teach is that if you don't spend at least some time in the beginning critically thinking, then all you're doing is you're a, a slave to the system. You happen to get a teacher that you kind of liked, and you're a secondhand version of them. And oftentimes, they can't quite tell you why it works. They just know that the guy that they got it from or the girl they got it from Mm -hmm. showed them that it did work and it looked good and it felt good. But why does it work? We can't figure those things out. So, I'm always a why guy. I want to know why something works and then I can play games with it and then say, well, maybe I'll break that. I'll flatten that space. Tangents are bad. Maybe I'll use tangents for a specific reason. And you can play with those ideas. So, you're saying the people that feel it, instead of thinking about it, they're just instinctively copying somebody else or? Oftentimes, yeah. Uh, And there's good copying. I'll explain in a second. There's bad copying because we all copy and we all have to copy. If you go to most good museums, you'll see great artists have done copies of other great artists. That's how you learn. Mm. But uh, if you're just a slave to that, if you've got an atelier or a school or whatever, they have the house style. Right. And now, how many students going through that are going to be able to transcend that style and make their own style? They're going to be influenced and probably heavily influenced yeah. by that style. And they'll probably never get past it because they don't know what's in that style. And oftentimes, a teacher isn't able to tell them what is in that style that really makes it work. They have a process that they're teaching rather than a philosophy. And for me, we're visual philosophers and we can get into deep meaning of life and man's inhumanity, man kind of philosophy, or just the philosophy of how form reacts to our mind. How does your audience see things? How does their psychology work? We're all related as humans. We think in very much the same way. How can we use that? Well, if I make things dark, then that gets a little creepier. If it's in a film, I have on and off lights or cracking thunder and loud noise and silence. That's scarier. You you can use those to storytell, but you can also use them on a deeper level to get to iconic ideas, metaphorical ideas, deep ideas. Rembrandt used golden light off camera from above. That was religious light to him. 
That was God's enlightenment, was enlightening the Christians, you know, the Calvinists that he was and was primarily painting. You know, you're going to rot in hell or you can be enlightened by this glorious light. And so he painted pretty ugly people with glorious light on them because it wasn't the flesh that was the truth for him. It was God's loving light from above or however he was going to frame it. Mm-hmm. So that's the powerful metaphor. So you were saying most students aren't able to get past the house style of the atelier. Yeah. Yeah. And how could they unless they're just diligent and they're treasure hunters? And that's what you have to kind of be nowadays. There's not going to be any place where you can get everything. You know, you're going to get pieces. And so you'll go to that school or that artist or that book or that image bank mm-hmm. and you go, oh, look at that. I love the way uh, that guy uses line. I love the soft sfumato edges of this guy. Rodin was an impressionist. He'd lay in the impression of a socket and they'd take a blowtorch basically and meld it down. Maybe how can I get that into paint? And you treasure hunt and you steal. Okay. And that kind of copying is great. Copying is great if you're trying to learn that idea. How do I get form? How do I get three-dimensional concepts on a two-dimensional flat surface? How do I do that? You need to copy. You need to steal from people because those are nobody's ideas. They're everybody's ideas. And you copy those and you learn from that. And they'll have you put up a cast or the ball, cone, and cylinder, and you'll copy those things. You'll copy the lighting and all that kind of stuff. That's all good stuff. But once you get past that craft 101 stage where things really take off is when you copy not from one source or two sources, but four or five sources. I'm going to take Da Vinci's Fumato idea and Caravaggio's value range and Christianity's metaphor of light as salvation. And I'm going to take everyday people. I'm going to take Gothic, not classical ideas. Da Vinci, the Renaissance, Michelangelo, they use the Greco-Roman aesthetic. They use the Aquan and the Belvedere Taurus, all these glorious Greek god sculptures. You know, these god, man as god, woman mm-hmm. as goddess kind of thing. And made this ideal of beauty. Well, Rembrandt was every bit as good as draftsman as those guys were. He's one of the great draftsmen in history. But he is the Gothic tradition the time before the Renaissance, where it was, again, flesh as corrupt. Flesh is a bad thing. You know, sex is bad. Nudity is bad. You cover that stuff up. You put a grape leaf in front of the genitals, that kind of stuff. Right. You, you hide that kind of stuff. And he used that. It was not glorified. It was a reverse of that. You had kind of buggy-eyed characters. Everything was kind of awkwardly round. You didn't have the sensual hips. You had the big, full belly and hips, which was the birthing. If you're going to deal with sexuality, it's to procreate, it's to put more babies on the planet, that kind of thing. And he used that. And and so, he took from four or five sources and did a mashup. Is it possible to create a truly unique style or does everybody really just combine? Yeah, it is. You and I could create a truly unique style right now Mm -hmm. and it would be easy. And all we do is say, I use this all the time, so it's not unique. I came up with this years ago, <laughs> and if you guys want to steal it, you can't. Let's be the uh, first artist team that makes a jello skyscraper. Okay. That's completely unique. Nobody's ever done that. But it's stupid. <laughs> it's a stupid okay. idea. So usually when you're original and you come up with something brand new, there's a reason nobody ever did it before. It was a dumb idea. But every once in a while, somebody comes up with a brilliant idea quantum mechanics or the transistor or the wheel or fire, let's tame fire. 
Those are big ideas, but most of us mere mortals aren't going to be able to do that. But you might be able to add one thing, like Michelangelo, he took Greek sculpture, which is contrapposta. If I shift my weight from both feet to one foot, I get what Rodin called the classic curve. That informed Greek art and then Roman art after it and everybody up to Michelangelo. And then Michelangelo did the one little thing and it was completely original. And he probably dropped his pencil and he went, oh, wait a second. What if I take that classic curve and now make it truly three-dimensional and move that figure in and out of the picture plane? Because mm -hmm. this is three-dimensional from every direction, but it's still flat in the picture plane. Who was the first guy who separated the arms and the little figurines, the primitive figurines? And who was the guy who shifted the weight from one foot to the other? You know, just simple ideas, but those are revolutionary. But even those don't happen very often. Who's the guy who thought of taking a photograph and then putting it right next to another photograph, another photograph, another photograph? We got film. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. Are those styles? Well, those are revolutions. Right. But, you know, how that becomes a new art form. It's stylistic, but it's deeper than that because you can create any costume on that three-dimensional movement out. Right. You can do it as a Raphael or a Rodin or a Michelangelo or a Picasso. won't matter. You, know, you can do a Roger Moore sculpture. It won't matter. That idea will hold. That's a fundamental truth. It's a fundamental observation of how the world works or maybe how the world should work, say, mm -hmm. in horror or fantasy or science fiction, that kind of stuff where you posit what could be. But that's how the world works. And now you can costume that in any way you want. And is the costume the style? The costume's the style. Okay. So that idea works also for getting the nose to come off the page. And then that could be done like a sergeant, or it could be done like a corbet, or it could be done like a chagall, you know, and it can be closed any which way. Now, the easier way to work, if you can't come up with that revolutionary way to change the world, is you just do the mashup. Hollywood does it all the time. Big business does it all the time. Little entrepreneurs. What if I put a art course on YouTube? You might you think of that. A lot of art courses. Yeah, you might think <laughs> of that. Yeah, why? Well, maybe I'll put classes on YouTube, so yeah. the people who live in uh, Bangladesh can access it. Right. Yeah, you know, we live in LA, or I used to, and even in LA, the art center of the world, really, there's still a lot of classes you wish were offered. There was a lot of styles, a lot of teachers you wish were teaching. You can't get everything here. How are you going to get it in Oklahoma City? How are you going to get it in Tehran? Now, with the internet, you can do that. Yeah. If you went to my workshop, you'd be paying whatever it is, 400 bucks for that. Now, yeah. a lot of people in this world don't have 400 bucks. Right. And a lot more don't think it's worth 400 bucks. But it might be worth whatever you're charging online. Or if I can just see a little five-minute snippet of that for free, mm. that might be enough to right. wet my palate and might be enough to, uh, that I can get the rest of it myself. Mm -hmm. So that's revolutionary. So anytime you can mash things together, Hollywood does it in their high concept. So what if we have a, a kid who goes to boarding school, British boarding school? There's, there's a long line of literature in Britain of kids going to boarding school and having whatever dramatic story they have in the boarding school novels. But what if we sent a kid not to boarding school, but to magic school? The boarding school is a magic school. Those are two boarding school magic, been around forever, common ideas. Nobody put them together. 
And even if seven or eight or 20 did put them together, no one would have put it together the way she did. Mm -hmm. What if we have the hero of the story or one of the key heroes of the story hate the guy he's trying to save? That's a Snape character. Right. So that's how you can create a character in a story. That's how you can create an art style. What do we? I guess I'm confused though. Like, are you talking about styles or I ideas for the message? Everything. I'm having a hard time. Everything. Okay. You can look at art movements. You can look at styles. I don't separate the message from it because whatever okay. you do, if we go outside after the interview and look up in the sky and see a cloud, mm -hmm. your instinct will be to try and find a picture in that. Oh, look! It looks kind of like a duck you'll impose meaning on it. Or if you go out as a little kid at night because your dad made you empty the garbage and you go out and the wind's going, you hear creaking trees. Who said that? Somebody's talking or somebody's growling at me. Uh -huh. Or why is the sky angry? There's this flash of light and this cracking sound. We are wired to make things make sense. For example, if I say, oh, look at that, and they're going to see that my finger points more or less at you, you're that. If I go over here, they'll try and find, I go look at that the picture, they'll go, oh, you're talking about me. We connect. It's called closure in psychology where we connect the dots. If I do a drawing, I put a dot here and a dot here and a dot here. Now, what have I drawn? A triangle. Yeah, but I just did the three dots. You guys drew the triangle. That's closure. You connect the dots, literally. Right. Whatever you do in art or whatever, you know, if I go, yeah, sure. You're going to say, now, why is he mad at me? Or why is he, does he want to leave? Kind of do. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just. Yeah, you'll, you'll start attaching meaning to it. And maybe I had a kink in my neck and that's why I did that. Right. But you'll go, he's mad at me. What did I say? We are wired to make sense of things. And so whatever you do as artists, that's why I say visual philosopher, whatever you do as an artist, it means something. Every mark you make. No, nope, that's the name of the book. That, that's why I did that because usually what we do is we have a process. And if we have more time, we refine the process. And if we have more time, we refine it farther. The result gets better and better and better, give or take a mistake here or there. That's not the way to do art, I don't think. Because then you're locked into a process, which is someone else's process. And originally, it was a great inspiration when Fred Fixler or... Whoever it was who came up with the style, Fred Fixler was out of the early illustrators. They were out of Sargent. Sargent took Carlos Duran, his teacher, and said, well, he's got a great system, but he's not talented enough to know what he's got. He can't paint his ideas. Mm -hmm. But the implication was I was talented enough, and he was right, that he could paint his ideas, and he, could, he had that system. And that all of American illustration comes, or most of it, comes out of that foundation of Sargent but she was taking Velasquez and Manet, in effect, putting it together. Carlos Duran brought it from a different direction, but that's kind of where it ended up. So all those things, whether it's the style, the subject matter, the choice of medium, they all mean something. And if you don't think they do, you're making a mistake. Now, you don't have to make them mean something up here. Okay, I use blue. Blue means, uh, see, let me remember my religious mythology. That means sky, heaven, mystery above. It doesn't have to be that, and it probably shouldn't be that. They're going to attach meaning to it. Just like when you sit, every gesture means something. 
So what should the artist focus on? You're saying that they don't have to separate each of those things and deliberately decide on it. Yeah, each. well, so what do you focus? You've on? got you basically have two questions to answer as a young artist or any time, but I mean the two things you want to answer is what do I see? When I look at that couch or look at that nose in three-quarter position or whatever it is, what do I really see? If you can understand what you really see, you can get it down on the page of the canvas. That's the craft, learning the craft. And so there's going to be certain processes you do use because they start to answer those questions. And hopefully, there'll be a why behind those on some level rather than just do it this way because my mentor mm-hmm. told me and I know it works. There's an old story that housewives tell. I forget whose family it was. It was actually friends of ours told us this story. And uh, they're watching this woman make her roast for the group that was going to eat dinner that night. And she cut off both the ends of the roast and put it in the pan. And it came out of the oven and it was delicious. And so they go, God, that was good. Now, why did you cut off the two ends? How did that make it better? And she goes, I don't know, mom, why don't we cut off the two ends? And mom goes, oh, I used to cut off the two ends because our pan was too small. So they just did it because they saw someone do it, but they don't know why it helped or if it helped even. And that's usually the kind of education we get. We get a process that works pretty well. Mm-hmm. And a process just says if you follow this step from 1 to 10 or 1 to 3,000, more often than not, you'll get a better result. Right. And the more incremental that process is, the safer it is. But also notice if I tell you how to move just this far in the process as opposed to this far, you're going to get a better result. It'll take you more time, but it will look more like me because it's my process. And I probably look like that guy back in that generation all the way back to the original inspiration. So what we want to really do is we want to say, what do I see? Now, what are the fundamentals that are out there of perspective, of structure, you know, shape design, of lighting, color theory, mm-hmm. you know, all that kind of stuff, organic ideas, as opposed to architectural ideas. You know, what is it that makes so do we difference? challenge our teachers, everything they teach us? Is that how we... Well, you steal, you steal from them. But don't just steal. Even if you get a, a great teacher, don't just steal from them. Do steal. you question why you're stealing every little piece? Well, or? it's a good idea to question because then they'll explain why that works right. if, they're, if they can. And okay. if they can't, you'll find another teacher or you'll start looking at old masters. And you'll say, okay... Well, uh, Polyclitus did that, and Michelangelo did that, and mm. Bernini did that, and on and on and on. You go, now, why is that? Okay. Why is it that every horror film, just when you think it's safe, that's when the monster jumps out? Well, why would that be? If you, if you see that enough and think about it enough, you go, well, oh, I get it. The motive is to scare the audience as much as possible in that moment. Mm-hmm. So, if they're already kind of scared, then getting really scared isn't that big a jump. But if they get kind of scared and then they go back and they get scared again and go back and you get scared again, go back, but just a little scare, you go, okay, it's going to be a little scare again and it's a false alarm. He opens the door, nothing. Opens the door, it's a cat. Opens the door, it's the light bulb swinging or something. Mm-hmm. And he opens the door and nothing's there at all and the monster's behind him. You scream like crazy. So, what you do is you play way down that visual component or that component of what you're trying to say, and then you kick it way up and you have that big leap. Mm-hmm. Do I have to step down the step or jump off the cliff? That kind of idea. And so, you want to understand why does it work? Why if I put a dark value here and a light value here, it feels like it's form? 
And you can start understanding that there must be some formula in life that speaks to that. And artists are afraid of formulas because they think, well, that's, Steve, you're talking about all this kind of life uh, philosophy and stuff. If you do formulas, aren't you killing all that? Mm-hmm. No, we use formulas all the time. That's science. That's how we can get rockets to the moon. That's how we could have electricity, E equals MC squared, all that kind of stuff. Life work with a predictable, consistent regularity. The sun set last night, it'll probably set tonight. You can be pretty sure of that. So if I make this dark and this light, and this dark and this light, and this dark and this light, and this dark and this light, if I make all those side planes the same or similar value, and all these front planes a different and let's say lighter value, I'm going to get this box logic that will work with consistency. And I can stair step and structure out even the most complicated thing fairly easily. And then once I've got that box logic, what if I use rather than a just a swath of dark and a swath of light, what if I put a gradation between it? Well, now that will round the edge. So gradations round the edge. Now, it doesn't matter what technique or what medium you use. That's going to be a fundamental truth that you can depend on. Right. Now, that's what do I see? What I say about it is, now what am I going to do with that? How am I going to make it what I want it to be? How am I going to bring back that great Baroque period I want everybody to enjoy like I enjoy? I'm going to pay like a Baroque artist. Or how am I going to come up with a brand new style? Or more likely, and more productively probably, what if I want to paint like a Baroque artist, but I don't want to look like I'm a knockoff of Rubens? How do I make it fresh and new? Okay. You know, how can I play that up in a way that's interesting? And like John Curran, a modern painter, did more of those more Botticello, but uh, he did the same thing. He took high Renaissance, really, and used it in kind of an illustration. And a lot of early illustrators in the 80s, not early, early now, but did the same thing. They used these kind of Renaissance styles, Kanoko Craft and all these mm-hmm. folks, but they did it in fantasy or they did it in Time Magazine cover. So it was modern stuff or they'd use it as a farce. You know, they'd make a social commentary with it and they costumed it in a different way. You know, they used acrylic paint, made slicker, simpler forms. They used kind of candy colors rather than the old sepia earth tone colors. Mm-hmm. You know, and so you change one component and it's brand new. And that's how you can create a story. That's how you can create a business. That's how you can create a style by mashing up one or two or five things. For me, it was taking, I wanted to do figure, but I didn't want to do naked people on couches okay. or at the beach. Everybody does that in California. Everybody does that all over the world. So what if I did nudes, but had them action figures? So I brought in movement and I used to box. So why don't I do what I know best? Or no, not best. I'm not a very good boxer, but but I know a little <laughs> bit about. Uh, you look like you heard about it. a little punch truck at this point. But uh, so I'm going to take the boxer, and also everybody in California. I was just trying to be different mm-hmm. to begin with. Everybody in California was doing beautiful girls on the beach with glorious romantic sunset, the candy color palette of the California Impressionist, mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff, loose juicy brush strokes, flowing hair in the wind and all that kind of atmospheric stuff. And I didn't want to, even if you can be better than all those guys, why do you want to be the same? So I figured, what can I do different? So I'm going to do kind of gnarly characters, ugly characters who are not passive but active. And not at peace with their environment, feeling the wind and the sunshine on their shoulders, 
but I'm going to have them fighting in their environment and contending. I'm going to make it a war. So, what can I do that's very, very different? That's not a bad way to start rather than doing the same thing. If I was a production designer in Hollywood, I would not be doing Blade Runner concept art because everybody does Blade Runner concept. The, the whole Photoshop program is geared to Blade Runner stuff. It controls the whole industry. So, everything's a variation on that original wonderful inspiration that Geiger and Cobb and these other guys put together. So, anyway, that started with the boxes. And then I, I got into art because I loved comic books. That's what I used to draw all the time as a kid. I draw these comic book characters. And so, what if they were big comic book panels? And then what if I took the energy of abstract expressionists and looked at an artist named Franz Klein, K-L-I-N-E, and brought, he'd use these big brush strokes of black on white or white on black kinetic strokes. What if that was these figures? You know, and you get that kind of energy in the zigzag of the arm and the falling back of the body, and that kind of stuff. And so you look at your canvas as a comic panel? Yeah, that it? it's a big comic book panel. And I'll play with tangents and mm. all this kind of stuff. Like there's a certain haphazard quality to comic books because they're knocking them out and stuff. And you'll get tangents or slight croppings. Everything's kind of big. There's a lot of dynamics. You're trying to get them to move into the next panel, all that kind of stuff. So I picked up on that as like Jack Kirby was a big influence. And I don't like the way he draws, but that was the epitome of that superhero ethic. Mm. My boxers are big superheroes, basically, they're bigger than life. So, I brought in comic books, a little bit of my own history, boxing, mm. the Franz Klein abstract paintings, Rembrandt light, and the religious martyr idea. Of and those are all things that you, that I liked. you really liked and you wanted yeah. to put them all together. Yeah. I learned that from an artist named Richard Bunkle who passed away of Lou Gehrig's disease when he was in his early 40s. And you can still see him online as B-U-N-K-A-L-L, Richard Bunkle. He uh, did this mashup. He loved New York architecture, neoclassic architecture. So, he'd do these big facades and they would be huge, six by eight foot paintings kind of things. When he was on a respirator in a wheelchair, he'd be, uh, they'd build a ramp for him. He'd be painting these things. So, he had this kind of flat facade, the beautiful deep chiaroscuro light like I'd like. And then he'd put a Chrysler building inside or a ship or a train or a whale and, and just do cutouts with the arches. So, you could see into this foggy environment with nothing in there and there'd be a floating ship with cables on it. And then he'd take a, usually from Moby Dick, he'd take, he'd go up into the frieze of the architecture and he'd block out in Helvetica type a partial quote from Moby Dick or whatever. Mm. Those things have nothing to do with each other. So, Moby Dick quotes, let's say a train inside New York architecture and romantic light and only four color palette. Uh -huh. And so, what do you do when you look at those? You, nobody goes up there and says, what the hell does that mean? That is, those have nothing to do with each other. They go, now, let me figure out what that means. Right. Do you think it meant something to him or was Of he course it did. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. But it's none of our business what that is. Okay. So, and he could, he's happy to tell us. But I mean, what's more important is when you do that, all of a sudden you've opened the door. And now the audience can come into your art. But if you give them every little thing, if you come in and give them every petal on that bush, what's left for them to do? Mm. But if at least you just do the three dots, then they get the pleasure of connecting those dots. And what happens then when you leave things open-ended like that, when you don't tell a story, but suggest a concept, 
or put together things that shouldn't go together. Magic in boarding schools, that's stupid. That's not real. That's childish, but it's kind right. of cool. I wish there was. Well, I think it's the execution, though. You could put it together. It's all of that. Really yeah. Bad way, Any right? of these, yeah, that's always the danger. You can always do it badly. And sometimes people do it badly, and then somebody else takes the idea and they see past the style. And they say, that was a great idea. It was just really bad. Mm. So, and you see that as there, in, okay. in just for in Impressionism, French Impressionism. For a lot of artists and a lot of audience, they'll say, that's lousy drawing, non graceful brush strokes. Okay. So, but in that boy, case, it's beautiful color. So, why don't I steal the color palettes uh -huh. and the beautiful shifts of warm and cool and rich and gray, limiting the value range into that sunlight, sunset? range of values, and they'll put that on a sergeant, as a sergeant did with these watercolors. And I'll use the skill set of a Velasquez. I'll use the color palette of a Monet. Mm -hmm. Now I've mashed up again. I've taken the best. So you can say, you know, a life coach will say, model yourself after people that you admire. Well, you might have an uncle who's a moldy millionaire, but he's a dirty, rotten guy. You don't have to model the dirty, rotten guy part, but how did you become a millionaire? Right. Maybe you saved these pennies in a char or something. You can take that one idea. Do you that. think that when somebody has a good idea but it still doesn't work, is that mostly because of not learning the craft or is there something else? Well, usually when you don't have a good idea, you're trying to tell a story. Mm -hmm. You're saying, okay, I want to make the world a better place. You have mm -hmm. excellent motives. So, I'm going to show dictators picking flowers with little children on a playground teeter-totter. Okay. So, I'm going to put Stalin there. Actually, this could be a good idea. Now, I'm going to have Stalin on the teeter-totter with some little girl, uh -huh. okay? Because that's what the life he should have lived. And I'm going to paint this beautiful, I'm going to use the Petura style of Titian in there. But that's a stupid idea because you're trying to, well, I shouldn't say a stupid idea, but it's not going to be very successful mm -hmm. because you're trying to force the audience to feel something. The door just closed. Yeah, there's no room for us to bring our baggage in. We're going to come to your art for what we need, not what you need. You got what you needed by doing it. But if you're going to show it to me, respect me enough to let me get some out, don't tell me the ending of the story. You know, I went to a movie once uh, when Star Trek II came out in the 80s or whatever it was. We walked into the theater and these two kids in the earlier showing popped up from the studio and said, Spock dies, and they <laughs> ran out of the studio and ruined the film for us. And that's what yeah. most artists do with their paintings. Spock dies, you told us the ending. Let us figure it out, or better yet, let us make our own ending. So, if I have a show, if somebody comes up to me and they'll say, you know, that portrait that you did is really sad. That guy must have been suffering mightily, and it might have been my dad that I was giving it to him for his birthday and I wanted him to feel happy. I didn't intend that to be sad, but something I did in there mm. triggered their response. And I never say, oh, no, 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 that, that's not sad at all. I go, yeah, that's right. Because it was sad to them. And it is right because it's sad to them. When somebody comes up to you and says your art means something that you never intended and that happens consistently, you're doing something right. Now you know you're onto something because the door has opened up and you're allowing them to come in within your world, finding what they need to make their world better. And that's when it's art with a capital A and not just craft, not just piecing together something or a process. There's nothing wrong with that, just having fun 
you know, entertaining. So how do we know how to balance it though? Because it seems like there's a wide range of what you can leave open yeah. or how much you can tell. Because you have to tell them. Well, you put, you put it out there. You, you Not necessarily. I mean, what did, how much did Rothko tell us? I mean, you can do minimalist yeah, well, work, but most of us don't want to understand. Right. But there's nothing you have to do. And as soon as you realize that, okay. it opens things up. Then the problem we realists have is that we're realists. That we think much. we tell too much, but also we think that when we paint a nose, it's a nose. Mm -hmm. It's not a nose. It's our idea about a nose. Now, why does that idea have to be so limited? I'm not a huge fan of Picasso, but look at Picasso noses. Look at Modigliani noses. Look at Moore, Henry Moore noses. You know, look at the guy, the abstract, the contemporary artist, because they'll tell us how to think differently at least. And we may never want to go anywhere near that stylistically. We said before, well, what if you do it bad? Well, now you've got a wonderful idea waiting for somebody who can do it better. Right. You know, if J.K. Rowling screwed up Little Boy at Magic School, maybe J.D. Salinger, if he's still alive, I don't think he is, maybe he'll do it better. That's a great idea. Yeah. So, I guess most people that go to ateliers and, you know, the realist schools probably have this problem where they have a fear of drawing something wrong, You're right. right? The way right. it is in reality. So, right. what would you recommend to people? Right. Well, it's a, it's a valid fear because there, if you throw things, if you take that nose and do this, it is wrong in terms of the portrait or if you make the nose go into the face rather than out of the face. All those things are wrong realistically, and there has to be a very good reason to make them wrong in that sense. So, if you intentionally because, did it for a purpose. Yeah. So, if there's a purpose to it, then it's great. And what that is, it just, it's, that's all context. And that's, mm. that's where talent and taste come in. How do I do that great idea? Or how do I do something that's not a great idea, but do it in a great way? Sometimes they're just mediocre ideas. Like Sargent paintings, those are mediocre ideas, but they were done in great ways. All he's doing is the captains of industry, he's just making them royalty, which is what Van Dyke paintings were. He's painting royalty back then. Well, now the, the new royalty at that time and still is the people who make money as entrepreneurs or inherit money and sustain that money. And so, he was painting these people as gods. When he painted a little old lady, she wasn't a little old lady. She was Hera, goddess of the universe. You know, and she was seven feet tall and with this beautiful long neck, deep, intelligent eyes, huge hands that had strength and grace and power and elegance to them in fashionable draft and a rich environment. That was a mythology as much as Rapist Sabine or, mm -hmm. or any of that stuff. Some artists like myself even have a fear of just intentionally drawing things wrong. Just It's just like... Yeah. Just but we need the way a couch for that, I think. What do you mean? We'd have to lay you down and do long therapy. Oh. No, okay. I'm <laughs> so, Yeah, well, yeah. But I mean, everybody's going to have a different... This is a, is a continuum. I mean, what's wrong to Picasso is way down the line in terms of the continuum of what's right and wrong to us realists. So, you have to decide what's right to you, but all you have to do, and that doesn't mean it's easy, but it's simple, is does it ring true to what you're trying to do? Okay. Okay. So, like Klimt broke people's necks. He'd lay this head over on the shoulder and it looked incredible, but it wasn't real. Right. But what you're doing is not real either. What Hans Holbein does isn't real either. 
It's what Raphael did wasn't real. What uh, Rodin did wasn't real. Carpo wasn't real. None of those are real. They're stylized, idealized, abstracted, and they're poetic. They have a deeper current to them. So if I took a portrait of a couple and put them right together with each other, or if I moved them to far outside corners, that all of a sudden would have a very different feel. Maybe they don't get along so well. Yeah, that's what, I forget his name, he's California, David Hockney. And he would take these and fairly flat graphics style of painting, and he'd, he'd have them in uh, mid-century modern California living room, and you could see through the glass of the pool outside or something like that. And he'd put them here separated. And that spoke to isolation in the city. Yeah. And so that's what I get out of it. Yeah, just by doing that. It's still realistic. You could have done that in any realistic style. It could have been a fetch-in or a, you know, pick your favorite realist or painter and right. plug it in. It wouldn't have mattered, a repin or something. But as soon as you do that, Dewing did very much the same thing, a American tonalist. And all of a sudden, and you'd have these lonely figures. It was a product of the fact he didn't have a lot of money to set things up. He'd have one simple prop in there. He'd have a little vanity desk or a piano or a simple chair with a painting on the wall, and it'd be a one woman in a dress like this, in a flooring dress. And she looked as lonely as she could be. You know, it was just isolated from the whole world. You know, sometimes we accidentally come up with it, and that's a fairly trite concept. It's real easy to make it cliche, especially at this point. But those are lovely little paintings. Mm -hmm. You know, and so anything can be done well or bad, and it can elevate or degrade. And that's where talent comes in. You know, do you have the uh, aesthetic sense and do you have a sense of human nature of how people around you act and react and how you react that you can pick up on that? Yeah. What if I make really beautiful people hitting each other in the face and trying to hurt each other? That's pretty conflicted, pretty messed up now that I think about it. <laughs> so, and I've had people come up and say, I really like your paintings, but it bothers me that I like them. Because they're beautiful light. They're not beautiful figures, but they're beautiful light or right. whatever they like about it. But I hate boxing. I think it's violent. Yeah. You know, I think it's uh, exploitive. It's, uh, mm. And I did that on purpose. Because right. by making something beautiful that should be considered ugly and pretty brutal mm -hmm. and maybe even banned, now that's drama. What if I have a hero who hates the little boy he's supposed to save. That's drama. That's good drama. You know, novelists and uh, filmmakers want that kind of conflict. What if I have a guy who's a brilliant but nerdy chemistry teacher, you have cancer, and he's got to become a drug dealer to support his family. I was just family. thinking of that because there's that conflict yeah. or you're rooting for him and then all of a sudden- like, Yeah, and the, con that the uh, producer that pitched that show is, what if Mr. Chips, the famous teacher of school, became Scarface? Mm -hmm. Now, that's an interesting idea. What if this guy who's a model citizen becomes the worst of our society, mm -hmm. but for all the right reasons? I just want to leave something for my family and pay for my cancer treatment. That's good stuff. So, when you can bring things together, that's oil and water. If I can bring magic in boarding schools, if I can bring an alien invasion Big game hunting. That's the Predator series. Mm -hmm. So that, that makes it that yeah. To, to find that's or, a tool for being creative. Okay. So you have three ways to be creative. You can be a craftsman. 
you can follow the process of your teacher because it's a lovely process and it's okay. darn fun to do. And you get good results. You get a B plus most every right. time. Nothing wrong That's with that. Keeping the old truth alive. Mm-hmm. You can be completely original and make a jello skyscraper. Okay. But the problem with making the jello skyscraper or being totally original, usually, let's say 96.8% of that's garbage. Mm-hmm. It's poo-poo caca, <laughs> as yeah. we say in the business. We'll the you. problem is with craft is 98.6% of that isn't very good either. It was done way better before. Okay. And sometimes it's just darn horrible. You know, it's, it's all out of whack and stuff. So most of the time, you're not going to be able to take it to these transcendent heights. And you'll have to work quite a while even to get to a mediocre height. Okay. You know, it takes you 10 years to learn how to be an okay drawer oftentimes. Yeah. So, so the third one is- And I still can't. I'm not, not okay dresser. But the okay. third way is the oil and water. Right. You take two things that are usually common knowledge and put them together. Okay. Beautiful design and computers that are easy to use. It could be five things together. Comic books, boxing, abstract expressionism, religious light. Okay. And that way you're making the old thing new and you're contemporizing it. So to you, like what is the purpose of creating art? Is it enough to just create beautiful pictures or do we have to have a message or record the there's modern time. Not, there's nothing or... in this world you have to do. Okay. And in some ways, nothing you should do. I mean, if you're going to try and make a message, you're probably going to close the door and the people you speak to won't be the people you really want to speak to because it'll mm-hmm. be oversimplified, it'll be patronizing. So probably you don't want to do it. But there's all sorts of exceptions to that. I mean, look at Goya's war uh, etchings. Look at Katie Kovitz's wood blocks. You know, they're proselytizing about the horrors of regimes and war and all that kind of stuff. Sometimes it works beautifully. But most of us, it comes off as cliche. Though even that far back, it was slower times. Now things move so quickly, we get bored. Yeah, I got to be texting my uh, friend and watching TV and listening in my headphone, do a Steve Houston lecture or a Stan lecture or something like that while I'm rendering. Right. Usually we multitask because we get bored quick. We, yeah, we got to be doing video games where somebody dies every three seconds. Yeah, we got to watch movies where it's fast cut, fast cut, fast cut. They can't have a three minute take. That would bore the audience to death. They'll switch the channel on the TV. You know, and so there's all those kind of restrictions and problems. You know, even getting a set of students in a school that has the attention span to want to render for many hours on one piece. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's even a problem. Getting right. them to focus on their craft consistently because there's a football. I mean, I can watch 12 hours of football on Sunday. Why would I want to be drawing? Or if I'm drawing, I'm drawing while I'm watching 12 hours of football. Yeah, so it's really easy to get distracted. We live right. in fairly pampered times. Not everybody, certainly. But even our Poor people aren't as poor as they used to be. Mm. You know, in some places they are. But I mean, we have uh, leisure and we have conveniences. We have Sundays off at least. We don't have to work 12 hours a day, at least some of us don't. All those things create opportunities. There's nothing you have to do. Trust your instincts and your instincts will get better with it. Trust your imagination and your imagination will get better. They're muscles. So work them. And at first, you're going to make bad choices in terms of great art. 
probably. And maybe you end up never doing great art, but you sure have fun doing it. And, and that small group of friends and family absolutely love it. And grandma or whoever or your boss absolutely adores that little portrait you did or that big portrait you did of him or her. So, you can manage your expectations and you can be patient with yourself. You know, so oftentimes we get really hard on ourselves as artists because we're creative and we know what it should be maybe and it's not coming out that way and then we give up. It's just too painful. There is, uh, I forget the writer, but he says uh, like Norman Mailer, some 20th century famous writer. And he said, with every book I write, a little piece of me dies. That was how painful his creative process is. That was how hard he was on himself. And think of all the great artists who killed themselves, you know, the Hemingways and the Van Goghs and all this kind of stuff. The tortured creative mind is a cliche even, you know, because we beat ourselves up. So, being patient, uh, giving yourself time to get there and being comforted with the idea that you're not as bad as you think you are. And you'll probably never do a masterpiece, but that's okay. You put out the best you can. You know, I was waiting, waiting, waiting to put out work in galleries. And finally, Dan McCaw said, you're never going to do a masterpiece. So, why wait? Just do the best you can. And my view now is if I'm not embarrassed by my work three or four years later, there's something wrong. That's true. I should be better. Right. So, but if you wait to be the best, you'll never get there. You'll never put out one painting. I mean, you can frame these things in whatever ways, use whatever words make sense to you. Mm. But what you're trying to do is do something that rings true to you. Is there something you tell students that have a hard time figuring out what rings true to them or what they should do? Yeah. You know, I mean, there's, again, there's nothing you have to do. So, you can do, like I love, uh, since I grew up with comic books, I love all the comic book movies come out. None of those are masterpieces. Some are pretty good, but none of them are great films by any means. Most of them are fairly bad films, but they're sure fun. They're entertaining. There's mm-hmm. nothing wrong with that. Just doing a beautiful sunset or a beautiful figure on a couch, there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, there's a lot that's right with that. So, it doesn't have to change the world. And the fact is, I can almost guarantee you whatever you do won't change the world. But it might change a little piece, might change one person. And that person might go out of the gallery or from the folio feeling a little different or just being grateful that they had a break from their troubles. So, you manage your expectations and you decide what your definition of an artist is. What do you really want to be? And when it rings true, what is that truth? Because, I mean, we have a lot of truths in this world now. There's no one truth. There's all sorts of religious truths and scientific truths, atheistic, all this kind of stuff, political truths, you know. And so, you're probably going to be working within a small group, a tribe that agree with you. But the fact is, the difference, even if you're a completely different tribe than me, and it looks to me like you are, we're both human beings. Mm-hmm. And so, we have a lot in common. And if, if I find something interesting, and challenging and beautiful or whatever adjective I want to attach onto it, there's going to be a lot of people who feel the same way about it. And yet also, so I'm going to depend on the fact that I'm not so much different than that other, that tribe. You know, this is the way we go through life, disconnected. Uh, Whoever I am, I'm not in this old body. I'm this incredibly handsome, tanned individual who's six something and still growing. 
And so we're locked inside us and separated. You know, even when I touch something, I'm not really connecting to it. Mm-hmm. Not in any deep way. I'm always separated from it. So we're always different in that level. And yeah, we are connected in some ways. We can connect in a deep way, especially through our arts. You know, art does and religion does the same thing. Philosophy does the same thing. It connects in a deep, deep way. It, it breaks past the veil as a metaphor for that oftentimes. When you get this fortunate connection of colors and shapes or this fortunate connection of prayer to an idea, sometimes that veil opens up and you get a direct connection. You get this rush of energy through your body. Sometimes it's coffee, but uh, sometimes it really gets you. You get that connection. And so, the artist depends on two things, that we're not so different. So, if we find something truthful, beautiful, pick your adjective, other people will too. Maybe a lot, maybe a little. We can't control that, but some will. And yet, we are distinct. There's never been another you in the whole history of the human race. There's been a lot of people come through the doors. We got 7 billion or whatever it is now. And yet, there's never been a person exactly like Stan ever. And so, you have a unique perspective on the world that nobody else has ever had. Mm-hmm. And that's an opportunity then to bring something new. Nobody thought to put those two or those five ideas together the way you did it or to do that same old idea at a level that's never been seen. You know, why can't I do something as a realist that's better than Sargent or better than Rembrandt? You know, there's that possibility too. It's less likely, but it's still a possibility. But it's quite likely that you could take a little bit from Sargent, a little bit from Rembrandt, a little bit from Picasso and David Hockney, come up with something that's very interesting. It's done all the time. You know, any good business idea, any good movie idea, any good story is that, and any art style is that. Cool. I'm going to do video art instead of painted art. That was a new idea that was not too long ago. As we focus so much on craft, it is such a treasure hunt. And usually those treasures are really buried deep. Hmm. And it takes a lot of energy and diligence just to cobble together a figure drawing education or a color theory education. So I'm exhausted just doing that. Where is the time to then say something important about it? It's similar to learning punctuation and grammar. Mm-hmm. You know, that's great if you know where to put the semicolons. But if you don't have something to say in that story, you don't have characters that you've lived with or characters you've lived as to put down the page, what's the point of writing? But it's pretty clearly pointless that if I become the best punctuarian, I'll make up a word, (laughs) in terms of writing skills and I have nothing to talk about, no insight to bring, then who's going to read my story and why should I even write a story? I'm just going to put down random words. And so, oftentimes as realists, our craft then includes how to make a nose come off the page and how to put it in the right place in the right proportion and how to color it right, and all those kind of mechanical things. Fortunately for us, it can just be that one-off image. Mm -hmm. You can't just do one word as a writer. You got to run the story, whatever it is. As the artist, that can be aesthetically beautiful. But ideally, we would then have some great idea to talk about, some great fundamental truth, say loneliness or salvation or man's inhumanity to man, or whatever it is, or the thrill of competition, or you know, it could be anything. Yeah. But we have something to say about that. 
and bring it out. But if I'm going to lead you by the nose and say, now this is what you will have to feel with my paintings. I'm going to paint this beautiful, fact, she's really hot because that's what we usually do when we're male artists. And she's draped on the couch with this gauzy nightgown that's pretty <laughs> That's dark. a great image. Yeah, is it hot in here? I'm just going to be there. <laughs> and then and I've got moonlight coming through the open curtains and there's a guy in a black cape with a skull and a scythe hovering over her and she's pale skinned, which I thought was a great touch. And it's death coming for the hot babe metaphor. He gave us everything. What are we going to do? We go, yeah, she's a hot babe. But if you'll just turn up the air conditioning, I'll be fine. But you don't get anything else. You don't live with it. You don't take that home. And you go, God, she was not only a hot babe, she was also a really hot babe. That's all I can get out of that. Okay. So we need to do something that's iconic, that's metaphorical. Mm-hmm. Something that stands for other than itself. That's what a metaphor is. God is a rock. That's a metaphor. Now, that's a lie. God is not a rock. If there's a God, he's certainly not a rock. But since I can't understand very well the concept of God, and I know quite well the character of a rock, I can get some insight, maybe some emotional truth out of that metaphor. That's what metaphors do. Yeah, he is a rock because when I pray to him, I feel like I'm standing on firm ground. I feel like it's going to always be there. You know, and I'll start attributing to God these rock-like qualities, and I'll get some connection. So that's what we're really looking for as artists is to create a metaphor. Yeah, the fact is sometimes life can be magical. We can't sign up for a magical school, but sometimes life is magical. We have magic moments. Sometimes it is wondrous. There's a certain emotional truth there. It's not scientific truth. But we're flooded with scientific truths. We're talking to our audience through scientific truths. We can go home and drink ourselves to sleep after those wonderful scientific truths, you know, because we're so miserable in our lives. That's not what people need. Mm-hmm. But the art, you know, going to a movie, the right movie can change your life. You know, reading the right novel can change your life, or at least give you comfort to feel like that you're not alone in your life, that other people have gone through that. That film on transgender or depression or whatever, or uh, chemicals in the soil. Maybe that's why Aunt Sally's sick, because she lives by the chemical plant. You know, even that kind of stuff. The drama of those characters going through that, you can connect to that and pull from it. Mm-hmm. So that's the power of art. It works on these deep, deep levels. Right. I mean, think of the Sistine Chapel, where you walk in, you can't read. You've only listened to these stories through your clergy. You walk into that chapel for the first time and you see the face of God. That's pretty powerful. Mm -hmm. What can match that in a life that's pretty mundane and often is pretty horrific? And yet you've touched as this peasant, you know, half starved, who can't read and has no hope for a better job. You've touched God in some way. What was your training schedule like? Well, in school, what I did, I I touched on a little bit before, is I made sure that I prioritized the classes. You're going to get, let's say, five classes or four classes or three classes, whatever it is. Right. They're not all going to be equally valuable to you. Okay. Okay. So, do you choose the one you're interested in? Because you might be skipping out on something that's really important. Well, that's always the danger in life is when you make choices, when you leave something out, there's a danger you're screwed up. 
but maybe I really want to be an abstract painter, so I'm going to blow off that realist figurative class that I had first semester. By third semester, I realized I want to be okay. a realist figurative painter. Okay. Now I got to go back and take that as an elective. What I did was I took with whatever electives they give you, you take what you have to take, and that taste testing, that buffet of early college or early education, important. Now, like an Italian doesn't really have that. Mm-hmm. They'll teach the one process through a couple mediums usually. And then you're out the door with a great skill set in that process oftentimes. But you don't have communication classes. You don't have design classes. You don't have a sense of the contemporary art audience you're working with. You're mm. really doing paintings for a three or 400-year-old audience oftentimes. There's always going to be gaps and holes. So it's nice in the beginning if you can take a buffet and right. say, well, take a few of these. And as I found later on, I never wanted to be an abstract painter but I am an abstract painter. My figures, yeah. these are all abstract shapes. You know, these, yeah. you take this out of context or you crop it in, why can't that be a six by six foot abstract painting? Yeah. Wouldn't that apply to anybody? Yes, it would and it should, but most realists don't think that way. Okay. They say that doesn't look real enough and the only mm. truth is the realism of it. Okay. And even that's okay, but it's nice to know there's other truths. And you may say, I got my plate full already, just doing things realistic. I'm going to do photorealistic work. I love doing it. Yeah. And so that's enough for me. But oftentimes people, if you say, what about this? They go, oh, yeah. And they'll realize, you know, that's why I was fighting doing those tight renderings because I'm really a looser painter. It's a looser truth I'm after. Mm-hmm or kinetic truth or whatever it is. So, pick your choices. Kind of have a game plan. I always try and think two years out, five years out, 10 years out, and then a lifetime. When I'm 84, I was going to say on my deathbed, but in Florida, retired with a martini or something, I want to be able to look back and say, yeah, I wrote a good story for myself. I did okay. I don't regret that I didn't try and be an artist, that I didn't try and get as good as I could get or whatever, or I didn't spend more time with my family or whatever. You know, I, I did it well. I never wanted regrets. And so I tried to plan for that. But doing that, there's a level of maturity involved. That means you can't watch 12 hours of football. You can't go to all the parties yeah. or maybe even most of the parties. You have to give things up. And so that's a tough one too. And I've always thought that college comes too early. You know, we spend 12 years going through kiddie school, taking stuff the adults said we had to take to be good citizens. And for the most part, cramming for them and forgetting them. Mm-hmm. Can you really remember the capitals of all 50 states? You know, you just cram through that stuff and then you forget 99% of it. Yeah. And then, then what they do is that the last year and a half or so, you start taking tests and exams for college placement. You start sending out letters, planning for scholarships, and then you jump right into a package at Harvard or at Washington State or at this junior college, and you run through that for three and a half years, or maybe it's 12 and a half years, depending on what you're doing, and then you spit out and you're expected to be an adult and spend the rest of your life doing that major, which was American literature or business degree or whatever it was, when you're really still a child. Mm-hmm. You know, in terms of knowing what you want and what you need to do. To me, it's better to get out of children's school, 12th grade, and then travel for a couple of years or work for a couple of years or mix it up, work for a year and then go get a Euro real pass in Europe or, you know, get an inexpensive car and drive across the country that you live in. 
Okay. And so experience. Experience. Get and start to say, I was at that political demonstration. I don't like the way the system works. Mm-hmm. Or I looked at the system and think, well, actually, it's working pretty good. It needs to do something. I want to be part of that system. Or I think there's already plenty of bureaucrats. I'm going to be an artist. But what does that mean? But people jump into it too immature, really. We're not living in New Guinea mm-hmm. you know, 300 years ago where at 13, you were a man and you went through a man's right. And oftentimes, your body was scarred to show that you were now a man and not a child. And so, you went through an actual ritual and things were pretty simple. You didn't have much you had to do. Here, to be a good man or a good woman who can take care of their partner and their responsibilities and not take from the world, but to give back to the world or help uplift the world or even challenge the world, that takes some maturity. And oftentimes, our education system targets things early and then they say, okay, learn to draw, okay? Learn to paint, learn to render, learn to color, learn to design, and you don't know how to put those things together. There's nobody showed you. It was you took forty minutes of history, then forty minutes of math, and it's all cut apart. And so you have to be in a position that you're mature enough that you know what you want, even if it's wrong, even if you think you should be an abstract artist and later you change your mind to be a realist or vice versa. Make a choice, and then what's the best plan of action? Because the college isn't going to give it to you, probably. Right. What's the best plan of action to get there? What do I need? Drawing? Do I need anatomy? What do I need? Do I need uh, laws of light to understand how to render it? Is there anything that you would do differently in the way you trained or in the decisions you made? No, because all those, you know, when you look at your life, you know, I'm 58, when you've got you know, 20, 30, 40 years behind, it looks like it was meant to be. And everything that was a mistake is also an opportunity. Right. So, I illustrated and ended up hating it. But I got an incredible amount of mileage and I found out what I didn't like. And I took a skill set that had some problems. I was a hack, as I said, but also I was a pretty good hack because I could render. You know, I could picture make and stuff like that. It gave me some skills and I worked on things that I wouldn't have worked on. So, it was a good stepping stone. And then I went into teaching. And every time in life you're at, a, at those kind of crossroads moments, you're going to find lessons of what to do and lessons for what not to do. I looked at a lot of the teachers and saw they were burned out. Yeah. So, now how am I going to go through with this love I have for art and not burn out on it? They taught me what not to be as artists as well as teaching me color theory and whatever else. So, yeah, I mean, it is what it is, but I feel good about what I did. So, yeah. I could have moved faster here. Once I had done the illustration stuff and I got pretty successful, the more they wanted me, the worse I got because the deadlines became mm-hmm. more stringent and the imagery oftentimes wasn't as fun or whatever it was. And so, I've always kind of held back a little bit in terms of doing fine art and trying to be super successful at it because I didn't want that same kind of having to knock it out. And so, actually, the last four or five years, I've been working on some of these big commissions for a collector and I haven't shown in galleries because I haven't wanted to. I want to do these commissions and just not do the shows for a while and then when I do shows again in another two, three years, when mm-hmm. it'll be, there'll be something different. The boxes and the workers will be gone, do something new. Okay. I'm going to do uh, Stalin on a teeter-totter, I think. Did you study more from life or from masters when you were- I did both. I studied from life. I didn't use any of the uh, tracing tools that they used 
I can't even remember what they're called now, but the, uh, the projection stuff. Yeah, you know, now you do it with all sorts of stuff, but I didn't use any of that. I always drew freehand. Okay. What people would do is you get a photo, let's say this photo reference, mm-hmm. you could trace it out or you could freehand draw it. And then you take that and you put it in an image projector yeah. or print it out and blow it up. And then you work on that. I would always redraw mm-hmm. or and draw freehand. So, I would screw it up. But I have to draw two or three times to get it right and to pra- it was practice. Right. And also, I still use that process because when I draw, I'll draw it a little sloppy. So, I'll have to move things around a little bit and that creates these interesting edges yeah. and that sense of kinetics that's important to my work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's one of my favorite things about yours is there's a little things that if you had traced it, you would have never created these yeah. varieties from life. Yeah, and I saw that in Pontormo. Pontormo would do two or three nipples and six or seven fingers. Just look and he'd just leave them there. Right. And that created this sense of, uh, it was cool, but also a sense of vibration and momentary. It's going to move in a second to something else. In your book, you talk about consistency. There's a quote in there. So, start thinking of the frame around your artwork as a window into your world. The marks you make explain the rules of that world. They had better be consistent. Are you talking about in a single work or in a body of work? All. Consistency. Okay. So yeah. Yeah. And that consistency can be how it changes. So, think okay. of a gradation. This can be consistently a well-structured, well-designed art, but it could go from strong light to ambient light to shadow. Mm. So, there can be an evolution there. That's what a curve is, is it's always changing directions incrementally and going from down to eventually up. But it's that ringing true and having a focus of what you're trying to say with your work. The more clearly you understand that what that mark is doing for you. And just the way I almost went into engineering because I like math before I discovered art as a young man. So, I like to know why things work. I like to figure it out. So, that's just my thing. It's not all good. You know, for most people, they don't need to know every single why, but I like to know it. So, a lot of times it's just emotionally rings true, but every mark has to be in service of something. Okay. So, what do you enjoy more, quick sketch or longer effort? Yeah, I like all the process. I like to mix it up. Like sketchbooks, I'll do more kind of sergeant-esque kind of stuff or Mm -hmm. quick sketch oil paints. It'd be more my sergeant Mm -hmm. hat on. And then the longer will be more my Rembrandt where I'll build up wet over dry. So, you know, I like like all that. I don't at this point, I've been doing it long enough and I went through my early years as a realist doing stuff pretty tight. I don't like to sit there and render a big painting, a full painting with a fully rendered. And if you'll notice my work, it's designed in such a way and that's kind of the nature of chiaroscuro stuff where you have light and shadow and most of the information is in the light, you don't have to render the shadow. Most of the information is in the foreground, you don't have to render the background. So, I have kind of non-background backgrounds and the shadows are more or less void with a little bit of line work in them. And so, I'll actually create a gradation of realism oftentimes where I'll go to purely abstract shapes simple gradations go from painting to drawing where this literally does, but I'll do that in the painting and it keeps things fresh for me. I'm not focused on every little area and it's my attention span then is held because each area has a little bit different problem and then getting those all to ring true is kind of fun. How can I make line, abstract painting, realist painting and drawing all work in the same deal? What medium do you want to learn? 
that you haven't? There's two answers to that. I'm actually playing with writing right now. That's one of my cool. things that I'm doing while I'm kind of hiding well, out. Well, you kind this. of already. Yeah, I did that. That's one of the reasons I did that. I'm actually writing a novel for my kids. Oh, okay. A love letter Fiction. to my kids. Yeah. Yeah. So cool. I just have fun. I've, I've always world built. Is it in graphic? No, you illustrated? No, it, early on when I was trying, deciding to get out of illustration, I did a graphic novel for Disney comic books. Well, and then they went out of business before they, they ever- Did they print it? Oh, they no, they never printed anything. But they gave me a nice advance that allowed nice. me to be a fine artist. But I did that so I could work with these kind of mythological ideas for kids. Any more books in the works? I might. This? The publisher wants to do another one. This is doing pretty well. And I've got I've got a whole series, five, six, seven books I could do. Yeah. So yeah, at some point there'll be another one out. Okay. Are you working on one? Not yet. Okay. When I did this, I structured out very loosely three or four. And I mean, I've mm. been teaching long okay. enough. One of the reasons I'm doing this with you and doing the new masters and our mentor stuff is I won't be doing this forever and I won't be around forever. So I want to get out whatever I know and what I've got and what art has given me. I want to put it back out. Mm -hmm. So, and as many forms as I can do that. So it's great to have it recorded, you know, all that stuff. And then in the book form too, I'll try and do that. And then just everything I got is not mine. You know, it's me stealing from all these other great folks. So I want to get it out there. Because like I said, the treasure hunt is hard. And I think I have a few ideas that are useful that don't get talked about or don't get talked about in context mm. or at least in my context and so they could, could be part of the conversation. So yeah, there'll be more. I'm not sure when. Where do you see your art going in like the next decade or so? Are you going to do more boxers? Are you gonna no, I'm, I'm done with the boxers, uh, the worker boxers series. That was a particular kind of male mythology, you know, mm. tough it out, life's a battle, pick yourself up by your bootstraps kind of stuff. That uh, It's an American idea of, of yeah. uh, you work hard you know, and fight the good fight, then good things will happen, that kind of thing. Uh, there's enough of that, I think. I've got a series I've been meaning to do for probably 20 years on female okay. series. It's going to be a popular one. Yeah, and they're uh, it's foxy boxing. It's called. No, I can't get email boxing. Okay, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Uh, is it? Uh, it'll is be nudes. Figure? Yeah, I'll be nudes. Yeah, yeah specific I, take on that. Or? Yeah, I'm still playing with that. It's going to be kind of uh, a submerged idea. Yeah, I like cliches because there's certain truths and they push buttons, especially mm-hmm. in this day and age. But I'm going to play at least in the beginning with active and passive. The males were active. The female would be more passive. But there's also, in uh, it'd be a long answer, so I won't get into it, but the, we spent a long time with the male mythologies. So I want to deal with more of the female mythologies in life. And then I have a series of landscapes I want to do since I'm living in beautiful landscape country. Last question, where can people buy the book? Uh, you can get any place books are sold is what my publisher tells me to say. Yeah, you can oh. go online or to whatever bookstore and if they don't okay. have it, they can order it. But it's Got all it. over the place. And it's... Uh, it's in several languages now too. Oh, awesome. yeah! And I'm there, those are continuing to add. It just came out midsummer, so it's still fairly new. Yeah, uh, but they sent me a German edition. I think there's two or three languages other than English now. Uh, there should be four, five, or six by the end of it. So, awesome! Yeah. So, figure drawing for artists making every mark count. Thank you very much. Thank you. At my pleasure. I'm excited. It's sweet of you to come up and spend some time with me. Of course. <laughs> I hope to visit you. Yeah, yeah, that would be great. 
And you're all welcome to none. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you're not all welcome. Yeah, what's your address? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cut, 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 cut. <laughs> all right, guys. Thank you for watching.